I can do that. <laughs> oh, it's so good to be here. And, and like Pastor Matt said, we have a long-standing friendship, not just with the church, but with the pastoral family. So it's just super great to be here. And I thought you were still meeting at the grade school. So, you know, I saw the address and I saw at what number we were, I was at on Sunnyside. I'm like, wait a minute, something's not going together here. And then as I kept going, I thought maybe they're meeting in the Damascus church. And sure enough, super great idea. I love what you've done. It's beautiful. And you can tell you have a global emphasis. And I'm so happy to be one of your global workers. Um, when I got there too, so that kind of gets you up to date from the last time we visited, because the last time we visited, I was, well, I visited you when you were meeting like in a middle school or something, but that wasn't really an official visit. So the last time official, it was with Rick in probably 2015 or 16. Um, so you, things have definitely changed, but I love, you know, how the Lord has led you, and I'm excited for the future of this church. So when I got to Cuenca, so that, that video kind of gets you up to date. When I got to Cuenca, it was a bit overwhelming because, honestly, I was always like the associate pastor of my husband. We're like a team, and he would do most of the preaching, and I was more of like the administrator kind of person and, and helped with the kids and the women, the music. Uh, so when all of a sudden I'm the missionary, like doing what I'm doing right this second, this is not what... I would normally do. You know, the wife gets up, she says, hello everyone, and I have three boys, and they're this age, and I have grandchildren, and you know, that's what the wives do, right? So now I have to do the whole thing. So I, I got to Cuenca, and um, feeling a little overwhelmed, and I literally did not know a single person in Cuenca from before. So it's a whole brave new world. And I'm reading through the Bible that year, and I get to Joshua. And the first chapter of Joshua, it says, Moses, my servant is dead. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And I felt God say, put Rick's name in there. So this is how it would go. Rick, my servant is dead. As I was with Rick, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. I really needed that part. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And truly, as I said in the video, I have been so amazed at how the Lord has led me, how the Lord has used me, because think about it. Most pastors are male, and, you know, Latin America. Shut your ears. Okay. No. <laughs> but usted sabe. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, so, you know, I didn't know how I would be accepted by male pastors, this older, you know, lady. And I have been accepted with open arms, with respect. I am one of them. And I've been able to pour into their lives. And I have been astounded by that because I just feel like it's the favor of God. It's also what Rick uh, planted over the years. Because when I got to Ecuador and was introduced, people would go, well, she and her husband planted the church in Loja. And they all go, oh, oh, Pablo Selly, that's the name of the pastor. And he's a very respected pastor in all of Ecuador in the Assemblies of God. He just got elected as the general secretary. So it's like that just gives me this open door. And then, okay, 
like kind of like I have credentials or something. Um, so I was doing one of those Beth Moore studies. How many of you have done a Beth Moore study? Yeah, so this one was on the life of Paul. You know, the most famous missionary in the Bible, right? But there's this other missionary that's just really grabbed my attention, Barnabas. Because Paul, I mean, I highly esteem him. I think he was an amazing missionary, an amazing man of God, so talented, so incredibly intelligent. All of that is like beyond me, okay? I'm just simple oral. But Barnabas, I can kind of get him. And it says he was generous, that he sold a piece of land, gave all the money to the apostles. He participated in that offering for the church in Jerusalem, for the believers in Jerusalem that were going through a really hard time, and took the offering there with Paul. He was an encourager, you know. He, the apostles renamed him from being Joseph to being Barnabas, which in Greek is, um, I think it's kind of like, the word for the Holy Spirit, parakletos. I don't know how you say that in English, okay? Or Greek, but that sound, that's the Spanish way you would say it. And um, so they saw in him that he was an encourager. And I love your little card with the five names because I think one of the ways you can pray for them, obviously, you want to pray that the Holy Spirit moves in their lives. But as you're praying, if the Holy Spirit says, go visit them, Give them a call. Send them a text. Send a, go take some money to them. Give them a gift card from somewhere. Whatever the Holy Spirit tells you while you're praying for them, do that thing. Because one of the ways we reach into the hearts and lives of others is by encouragement. I think of it like the word courage in there, okay? So encouragement is like you're giving that person courage. And discouragement is like you're taking the courage away from that person. So have you ever heard like a mom in the grocery store yelling at their kid and saying, you're just such a naughty kid, you're, you know, or you're just so stupid or you're so disobedient or whatever. You're really just discouraging that child. Barnabas gave his nephew a second chance, John Mark. John Mark, you know, bailed on, on the team. And Paul didn't want to, you know, have him again on the second trip. Barnabas said, no, I, wanted, I want him on the trip. And so they actually split up and ended up with two missionary teams. Barnabas and John Mark went back to Barnabas' home island of Cyprus, and Paul went with um, Silas. Later on, many, many years later, Paul writes, send Mark to me. Send John Mark to me because he is useful to me. So... When Barnabas gave John Mark another chance, encouraged that young man, he grew up to be a useful minister. That's another way that you can be an encourager is giving people another opportunity. Um, so I, as I was studying all that, because that, that was just a tiny chapter in the book on Paul, you know, this big book, and there was like two pages on Barnabas. But then I've also studied more on him. And I realized, you know, that's one of my ministries is encouraging, like the one in the, in the picture. And just coming alongside pastors and missionaries and mentoring them and encouraging them and answering their questions, it's kind of a different season, definitely, than what Rick and I did. I kind of feel like 
Rick and I were the church planters, literally on the ground, forging, you know, building a brand new church somewhere. Now I'm kind of more on the level of training pastors and missionaries and stuff. And it's just been, I, I guess I never thought I had all that in me. But the Lord knew that all these years of experience, I actually had a lot more in me than I realized. And the Lord has used me greatly. And I, really, it's been a thing where I didn't go in with an idea, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But it was just, I would try to listen. What is it you want me to do? And as those doors opened, he would give me the courage, because it wasn't me, to walk through that open door. So I just want to encourage every single person in this room to just be intentional about listening to what the Lord wants you to do. I feel like us older people, I'm turning 65 this year, we have so much more than we realize that we can give to the younger generation. But how we give it is important. Instead of criticizing them that they're not doing it the way we did it or something, we encourage them. When you encourage them, like I encourage the young missionaries on the team in Ecuador, they want to talk to me. They seek me out because they know I'm safe. I'm not just going to jump all over them, well, but why did you do that or whatever. I might think it occasionally, but <laughs> no, but you have to be smart about what you say and how you say it. So us older people, we can be an incredible influence on the younger generations. And you younger ones, don't be afraid to hear God's voice. And if he says, go, be brave. Be courageous. I am not some gifted person. I'm just a very ordinary person. My husband would say, when God called him to be a missionary, he thought God had made his first mistake. <laughs> because he told the Lord, I have nothing to give you. And Rick would say, it's a good thing he called me to Latin America because I could have never learned another language. He was a missionary kid in Latin America, so he knew Spanish already. He said, if God had called me somewhere else, you know, that, that would have been a, a disaster. So you might feel like you don't have what it takes, but that's the whole point. That's the whole point. He wants us to depend on him. He, he wants to work through us and do whatever it is he wants to do. So that is my encouragement to you today. Thank you so much for praying for me. Thank you for putting me in that book. And really, every single one of you who actually prays for me, you have no idea. That is the only way I am still standing, still doing what I do. I have a grandson up in Seattle. I have a granddaughter coming next month. And I have to admit, that pulls at my heart. But your prayers sustain me. Your prayers keep me going. Your prayers empower me. And thank you for your financial support, too. Well, I love how we're talking about missions this morning with, with Laurel. Uh, I love how in our portion of Scripture that we're going to be studying as we continue our series through Deuteronomy, uh, all these things are going to tie together, uh, very much so by the end of the service. 
Uh, if you have your Bibles, pull them out. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1 as we are officially in the first chapter of this book. Last week we did the 30,000 foot flyover, the review of the entire book. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to dive in head first. We're going to kind of set the stage with some worldview. Uh, we're we're, we're going to give a little bit more background to this book. And we're going to tie all these things together uh, with what our purpose is as the church. Uh, often when we go to the Old Testament and we look at a, a book like Deuteronomy, uh, the initial response is, this is cool, this is good, it's encouraging, there's things maybe I've heard before, maybe there's things I've never heard before, but it's the Old Testament and it's just a lot of history. But can I tell you that that Old Testament and that history is important for you and I? Because it's going to, as we're going to see this morning, it's going to be the springboard for your and my call as followers of Christ to bring the gospel everywhere we go. And so, if you have your Bibles, Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, these are the words of God to Moses, to the children of Israel. But before we get there, one of the things I really love to do when I'm studying scripture, how many of you like those movies uh, with Harrison Ford, um, Indiana Jones? Anyone like Indiana Jones in the room? Okay, we got a new Indiana Jones movie coming. Uh, that's going to be exciting. Uh, but Indiana Jones is one of my heroes. Uh, and you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Matt, you're a pastor. You study the Bible. Like, you should have real heroes. Well, Indiana Jones is a real hero, okay? I know he's fictional. But the dude isn't like... He's a scholar, he's an archaeologist, he's an action hero. These are all things I want to be. Um, I don't know if I've achieved any of them yet, uh, but one day you will see me with a whip and a really cool hat, but it will probably be at a harvest party because that's not how I live. Uh, but man, Indiana Jones is awesome, and so when I approach Scripture, I want to approach Scripture as if I'm Indiana Jones approaching any adventure he's on. Uh, I'm probably going to punch some Nazis. Uh, I'm probably going to, no, I'm really, but I'm going to dive in and I'm going to find all the exciting treasures that are deep within Scripture. And I think there are some, actually I know there are some, in the book of Deuteronomy. And one of the ones that popped out to me that I thought was so cool isn't even a specific verse, but it's the structure and the layout of the book of Deuteronomy. Yeah, super exciting, right? Uh, but if you might remember last week, we talked about some potential theories of when Deuteronomy was written, who the author was, the time frame in which it, it was penned. And we discussed that a lot of scholarship in the last 200 years dates Deuteronomy quite late in its transmission. They put it somewhere probably after the 6th century B.C., maybe even as late as the 2nd century B.C. Uh, during the Second Temple Judaism time period. Uh, but one of the more recent uh, efforts and defenses for an older date of Deuteronomy, putting it closer to the time Moses was writing, if not there at the time Moses was writing in the late 2nd millennium B.C., is uh, we have found these things. I'm going to cough real quick. <coughs> How many of you love getting sick this time of year? Anyone love getting sick? Man, no, I do not. But uh, we, we, we have found documents that come from the Hittite culture. Uh, how many familiar with the Hittite culture in the room? Okay, all three of us. Awesome. So the Hittites were a very large uh, empire, a strong civilization, uh, what was in modern-day Turkey uh, and, and in this region. And what we have discovered from uh, the Hittites um, is something known as a suzerain vassal treaty. 
Uh, now that's exciting, right? Suzerain vassal treaties. But what a suzerain vassal treaty was, was they were legal documents between kingdoms and vassal states. And what's really interesting is the way in which they were put together. And these vassal treaties were put together with a preamble, a few lines and phrases. This is what you're about to read. Then they would go into a small section where they would give a historical breakdown or account of some of the things that had happened in the recent his, history of those who were uh, in the treaty. Following that, there was detailed stipulations of laws and, and, and different uh, sorts of things that were going to be pertaining to the treaty. And after these stipulations, there was an area where it was a blessing and a curse. If you follow the treaty, uh, things are going to go well for you. Here's the benefits, here's the blessings. But if you do not, things are going to go terrible for you. And then it was signed at the end. Thank you so much, Mike. It, it was signed at the end by some witnesses. And then many of these treaties had an addendum to them that at the end of it, there was, there was to be an annual reading of the treaty. And at that annual reading, there was to be a sacred meal. Now, I say all of this to say the formation of the book, uh, the, the book of Deuteronomy is the exact same. There's a preamble. There's a historical account. There's detailed stipulations. There's blessings. There's cursings. There's the witness. And it just so happens that the Torah is read every year, and they have a sacred meal known as the Passover. And so what scholars have done is they have said, you know, the fact that Deuteronomy follows this outline places it older in its transmission because this style of treaty had fallen out of use by the late 6th century B.C. all the way into the Second Temple period. And so there's no reason why a scribe would try to make something look old unless it was actually already old. And so to me, that's super exciting, um, and that's going to help us set the stage for this series. So if you have your Bibles, I told you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, but now flip, flip forward to Deuteronomy chapter 32. What we're going to do this morning in these, in these next few moments is we're going to set the stage by providing some worldview. Uh, Moses, as the author of Deuteronomy and all the other biblical authors who, who were writing in the Old Testament, um, they had a worldview in mind as they're writing. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they have a worldview in mind as they are writing these things out. And so I want to read Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 8 through 9, to really set the stage as we're going to dive into our study this morning. <coughs> this is what it says. When the Most High divided the inheritance of the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his place of inheritance. What I want to do, that was the New King James. I want to read uh, to you now from the ESV uh, and notice where there might be a little difference. This is what it says coming from the ESV. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. It goes on to say in verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. 
There's a little bit difference. The New King James says the children uh, or, or the elders of Israel, and the ESV says according to the number of the sons of God. This is important, and we're going to talk briefly about that before we dive into this whole worldview, because I think this is going to be extremely uh, eye-opening uh, for our entire study through the book of Deuteronomy, and really it's going to position us to understand fully some of the things that Moses is saying, And if you've been coming to Hillside for any number of years, this is probably going to be some level of review. Uh, but it's important to, to refresh our minds as we go through this. Um, scholars have noted that there is a text critical issue between uh, the Masoretic text, which is about 4th, 5th century A.D. Uh, Hebrew tradition of the Old Testament. It's what most English translations use as the basis for their Old Testament. But in 1946, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are an older transmission of the Hebrew Old Testament. We also have something known as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Septuagint rendering and the Dead Sea Scroll rendering of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, says, according to the sons of God. It's the Hebrew phrase, Beneha Elohim. And then the Masoretic, it is updated to say according to the number of the leaders of Israel. Now, as a whole, reading this, uh, the promise stands true regardless of what translation you're reading. The promise is that Israel is God's allotted portion. But the backdrop for what the authors is saying, uh, I think is important to understand in its oldest context. Because we believe that the scripture is inerrant. We believe that it is uh, uh, perfect for teaching us truth and for teaching us doctrine. In its original context, uh, scholars believe that it reads, Beneha Elohim, sons of God. What does that mean? That is setting up something that is known in theology as the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. So I'm going to get interactive with us now in the, in the few moments that we have. I'm going to ask a question and I want you all to shout out what the answer is. Uh, why is there evil in the world? Sin. Okay, where does sin come from? Satan. Okay, good. Where, what, what's the first mention of sin uh, in the Bible? Adam and Eve. Right, we have the transgression there in the Garden of Eden. And when you think about this question throughout Christian tradition, this has been the primary answer. The fall, sin, there, the Garden of Eden, that is why there is evil in the world. But there's more. If you were to ask a first century Jew, uh, probably the time of Jesus, right before Jesus, right after Jesus, if you were to ask them this same question, they would answer it similarly, but a little bit different. And we know this because we have writings that are extra biblical from the Jews there who were at uh, Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and other Jewish writings. According to Jewish theology, there is evil in the world first and foremost because of the fall. Satan uh, tempting Eve and tempting Adam into breaking God's commandments. Genesis chapter 3, we have a divine rebellion of Satan rebelling against God, saying, hey, did God really say this? Do this. And then you have mankind rebelling as well. So in Genesis chapter 3, we have a divine and human rebellion. But the first century Jew would go further. They would say, and there is evil proliferated in the world because of what occurs in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, I do not have 
five hours to break this all down. Uh, but you can write that down. Go look at it. But it's a story of the sons of God, the Beneha Elohim, uh, seeing that the, the daughters of man look good, cohabitating. Peter and Jude tells us there were angels who left their proper domain, and now they are in everlasting chains as punishment for this event. And so we have a divine rebellion that leads to a subsequent human rebellion. Jewish tradition and the tradition of many of the Near Eastern uh, regions surrounding Israel, the Hittites, uh, Egyptian culture, some Greek culture, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, all these things. There is an event that occurred where the gods came down to earth and taught mankind all manner of wisdom. And... What Moses, the author of Genesis, is doing is he points out in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that these gods that came down, they're the bad guys. They messed everything up, and it's one of the reasons why God is sending the flood, because mankind takes the knowledge and runs wild with it and breeds wickedness within the earth. According to tradition, this is important, write this down, put a pin in this. According to tradition, this event occurred at a region known as Mount Hermon, in the region of Bashan, okay? I want you to remember Bashan because that's going to come up a little bit later today. But then the third thing that a first century Israelite would say when it comes to why is there evil, first was the fall, second was the divine rebellion in Genesis 6, but the third thing was the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, you have a human rebellion which is going to lead to a subsequent divine rebellion. If you remember what happened at Babel, you had Nimrod, who was a real Nimrod, um, and he said, hey, God told us to go all over the earth and multiply, but I say, why don't we all gather here, let's build and tower, and let's go touch God. Most scholars believe what Nimrod actually was attempting to build there was not some sort of skyscraper, but he was building a ziggurat, a step pyramid. And what these ziggurats functioned as in ancient culture, they were temples, and they were temples that symbolized mountains. And what scholars believe Nimrod was attempting to do was to redo Hermon. Mount Hermon happened prior to the flood. That earth was destroyed. But there were those who knew the tradition and the history. And they said, hey, we want some divine knowledge. We want to be like God. We're going to build a mountain and call the gods back down to us. But how many of you guys remember the story from Genesis chapter 11? What did God do? He confused the people. And that's where we get Deuteronomy chapter 32 where it says, when God divided the peoples, remember that word divided because that's gonna come in at the end of the message. When God divided the nations, he allotted their borders to the number of the sons of God. We'll see elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the message translation, I think, actually really does a good job nailing this one. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, it says, when God set up divine guardians over the nations. That's one of the translations of Beneha Elohim. God had allotted the nations to be under the rulership of lesser angels in God's divine counsel. We know that Michael is the prince of Israel. We know in Daniel that there's the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. There's a theology behind this that there are God-appointed rulers in spiritual realms of other regions, but Israel is God's allotted portion. Jacob is his inheritance. If you fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 17 and 18, we're going to see that these other gods, gods that they had not yet known, 
they rebel against Yahweh and attempt to seduce Israel into idolatry, sexual immorality, and following after them. False gods subverting the power and the authority of Yahweh uh, and trying to take it for themselves. And if you were to fast forward in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 82, you can flip there or you can write this down, but we see a scene. It says, God is enthroned. Amongst the gods he holds counsel. So we get this picture that God is sitting with other divine beings that are subservient to him. And what is he doing in this council? Psalm 82 says he's judging them because they set themselves up as rulers and they swayed the people away from justice and righteousness. And Psalm 82 ends, if you were here on Easter, you heard bits and pieces of this. Psalm 82 ends with, arise, O God, and reclaim the nations. The gods of this world, the unrighteous rulers, subservient to Yahweh, God put them in his place, and through what Jesus did on the cross, he's taking back the nations. So there's some pretty cool stuff that, that's tied into there, but what's the context? How does this tie in to everything that we're reading in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, even this morning? Well, the context uh, is humanity was created to be the image of God. Humanity was created to be God's representatives here on earth, but humanity failed. They were supposed to be the representation, but they fell to temptation and to sin, and they failed at that. So, throughout those roughly 1,800 years of humanity before Noah, uh, they were supposed to be God's representation, but they were failing miserably and evil was expanding and finding new ways to be evil, so much so that when God looks at it, he says, I wish I never would have created that. And he's going to send the flood. And so the next bit of context is humanity was saved through Noah and Noah's family to renew Eden. They were given the Edenic call again, the very thing that God told Adam and Eve there in the garden, be fruitful and multiply. God tells Noah and his family, we just mentioned Nimrod and we mentioned the Tower of Babel. Noah's family failed. It only took two generations for them to break what God's commandment was to them. And at that moment, God says, okay, I'm done with this for a time. And so God sets up Israel to be his representation on earth. When you look at the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, all these prophets, they are calling Israel back to right relationship with Yahweh for what purpose? so that the nations around them would turn to God. But because Israel was foolish and left their first love, God gave them up to captivity in these things. But the third bit of context is Israel was supposed to be set apart to draw all people towards Yahweh. And at this point, Deuteronomy chapter 1, it is still in process. They've been called out of, uh, out of Egypt, out of captivity, and they're going into the promised land. And they're going into the promised land to establish the borders of Israel, the allotted portion for Yahweh. And they're going to bring the hope and the good news of who Yahweh is and what he does. Just a little bit more on this. Uh, I think this is, this is also interesting. We have the way Genesis is laid out. The Garden of Eden works its way down to Noah. Uh, then we have the Tower of Babel. And there's this focus globally. But the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, is the calling of Abraham. And the entire book of Genesis 
shifts the focus from the world to this people of Israel. And then we follow through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then to Joseph a couple hundred years, and that gets us to Moses. The story is all about Israel, and now Israel is going back into the land. And if you, remi- uh, if you remember last week what we talked about, uh, the, the borders that God gave to Moses for, for what Israel was going to be is roughly 300,000 square feet. From the Mediterranean coast up to the heights in southern Turkey, down to the Negev, which is there in the Sinai Peninsula area, all the way to the Euphrates. But at its peak rulership, the, 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 the largest extent of the kingdom during King David and King Solomon, Israel only occupied 30,000 square feet. So for all the math people in the room, that's 10% of the promise. 10% of the promise. I think there's probably a sermon in there for us. We could just stop right there. God has promised us a lot. How many of us at our best are only living in 10% of what God promised? I don't want to just live in 10%. I don't want to live in 11, 12, 13, 4. I want to live in 100% of what God has promised. And there's probably a sermon in there. And so if that's for you, take that and run with it. Uh, But Deuteronomy chapter 1, this is where we're going to dive into our text this morning. Um, And I'm going to preach for about 10 minutes. And then Aaron's going to come up and he's going to give us some highlights. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, these are the words of Moses, which he spoke to all of Israel. On the side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain opposite of Suf, between Paran, Tophai, Laban, Hezroth, and Dizhab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year of the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we get to study your word. God, we pray that in these next few moments, God, as we briefly look at at chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, uh, through the lens of this Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and how we apply God, the very uh, things that you gave Moses to the children of Israel, how we take that and have practical application to our life today as followers of Christ. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would build us up in our most holy faith, knowing that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, we pray that your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, God, we pray that it would pierce our hearts and that we would know your heart uh, for not only us as the church here at Hillside, but God, the church globally, uh, God, in your heart for the world globally. And so, God, we just thank you and we praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, I'm not going to read for you all 46 verses uh, out loud. I'll let you do that on your own. Or if you have the Version Bible app, you can just click play. Uh, If you're going to click play, wait until after the service so we're not disrupting anyone. Um, But just by way of outline of chapter 1, there's probably a five-hour, six-hour, seven-hour study we could do in just chapter 1. And maybe that will happen someday in the future, but it's not going to be this morning. Uh, But by way of outline for chapter 1, chapter 1 can be broken down into four distinct parts. The first part, Moses is going to get to uh, verses 4 going through verse 8 is Israel's sauntering. They have left Egypt, and they have made their way into the deserts. 
And they're making their way, but then they get word that Pharaoh and his chariots, they're in hot pursuits. And they find themselves at the, at the edge of the Red Sea, and they have the chariots at their back, and they are trapped. But God shows up. How many of you guys remember the movie with Charlton Heston? He raises the staff, awesome green screen, terrible uh, CGI, but man, for the time, it was amazing. Walls of water, and the children of Israel walk through on dry land. That's what happens. Maybe not exactly the way it was portrayed in that movie, but God splits the sea, and the nation of Israel, upwards of multi-million people leaving Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, and then the sea comes crushing down on Pharaoh and his chariots. Then Israel finds themselves in the desert, and they're wandering around, they're walking around, they're making their way from mountain to mountain, They get to Sinai. God does some amazing things. They send some spies into the land. The spies come back and say, yeah, there's giants. It's kind of terrifying. They're they're spying a region known as Eshkol, which literally means large clumps of grapes. And uh, Caleb and Joshua, they've got these gigantic grapes. They're like, man, the land is great. We should go take it right now. God said. Let's take it, so let's take it. But the other 10 spies, they say, no, no, it's not for us. And so they find themselves wandering in the wilderness. During this time of sauntering, uh, Moses is trying to do all the work. And then his father-in-law shows up, a guy by the name of Jethro, a Midian priest. Now, for, for any husbands in the room, when your father-in-law shows up, Uh, Gene, if you're watching this, honest confession. Uh, When the father-in-law shows up, you like try to work extra hard. Because you want to prove I am worthy of taking care of your daughter. Anyone else? Am I the only one? No, like when father-in-law shows up, you're like on your best behavior. I am going to work hard because I want to like him still to be proud of me. And so we get this picture that this is what Moses is doing. He's doing all the work. He's got everyone coming to him who's got a problem. This person is uh, uh, so on and so forth. And Moses is doing all these like stinking small things. And Jethro says, Moses, this is not good. This is not good. Moses failed the impress your father-in-law situation. And Jethro says, dude, set up some people. Set up some people to do the hard work, all these like menial tasks so that you can lead the entire people. Jethro gives the plan of delegation. And you, you can read that for yourself in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 9 through 18, as he sets up leaders and elders amongst the children of Israel to do the work. So not only are they sauntering, but they're also sharing the load. We talked briefly about the spies uh, that went in, but during this section uh, in verses 19 all the way through verse 33, we've got the picture of, of the 12 spies going into the land, and they rebel against God. God had told them to take the land. God had told them the land was already theirs. There's probably a sermon in that too about promises and God saying the land is already yours. Not like a physical land grab, but like in the spiritual realm, there are things that are already ours. Paul tells us in Philippians that every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is ours in Christ Jesus. But so often we get amongst ourselves and we question, we say, do you think God really wants us to do that? 
maybe not. Seems like too big of a problem. When God is already saying, it's yours, just go. So if that's for you, take that and run with it as well. Uh, But then we have the fourth part of, of, of this chapter, which is they're slipping. They're sinning against God. They're falling out of right relationship with the Lord. And as a result, they're gonna spend the next 38 years wandering in circles. Literally, if I put a map up on the screen, we can see broken down through the book of Numbers where they went, and they are literally going in a circle. Not, not able to break ranks. They're just going in a circle. And after 38 years, they arrive back at Kadesh Barnea. And then they're going to go into the promised land. And that is where we have Moses here giving this preamble, giving this historical account. He's going to list out all these stipulations, give blessings and give cursings. And then it's going to be witnessed by the nation of Israel, Moses, and Yahweh. The book of Deuteronomy, the second law, the Devarim, the words of God, that is where we are. They've been wandering. They've been messing up. And that generation that did all the messing up, they're dead. We're told their bodies were buried in the desert. They never got to experience the promise of God. But Moses is letting the next generation know that this promise is for you. Remember this, Moses is beginning to remind the new generation of who they were, of who they are, and of who they can become. Who you were, who you are, and who you can become. Deuteronomy is a book about the past, the presence, and the promise. If you were taking notes last week, that was the outline for the book, the past, the present, and the promise. And here's the takeaway today. I know we, we, we spent some time setting the stage with some biblical worldview and some background, so we're not gonna be diving fully into chapter one this week. But the takeaway from this, remembering that Deuteronomy is a book about the past, the present, and the promise, the takeaway is our past. As followers of Christ or as someone living in the 21st century, uh, if your faith is not in Jesus, Uh, the Bible says we are children of wrath. Ephesians chapter two, before Christ, we are lost in our transgressions. We are children of wrath, walking according to the ways of the world. But if you put your faith in Christ, your presence is that you're on mission. Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and what? Unto the ends of the earth. That is our call, that is our present, and our promise in Scripture, found in Revelations chapter, three, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will declare the goodness of Yahweh in his presence. In his presence. And this is, this is the connection. I love, I, 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 I love how this all ties in with this worldview. Humanity was created, all of humanity was to come from Adam and Eve, And humanity was created to be in God's presence. If sin doesn't occur, and humanity still progresses in number through multiplication and all of that, humanity exists in Eden. But we messed it up. And God provides a way to try and make things right from the mess up at the ark. Saves humanity, the only righteous. But guess what? We mess it up. And then God disperses it. 
But God doesn't give up on his creation. Maybe that's a word for you this morning. God doesn't give up on you. Because though they were separated from Yahweh, he put a plan, and it was the nation of Israel. And he was going to call Israel into that land to be his representation, to share the light, and guess where that representation comes to its fruition? In Jesus Christ. Out of the nation of Israel, a scepter will rise from the house of Jesse. Jesus is the representation of God through Israel to the world. And it's through his death and resurrection and that Easter event that the nations begin to be reclaimed by the church. Remember I told you to remember one word from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. It was that word divided. The word divided there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the other place we see that word divided is Acts chapter 2. Y'all remember what happens in Acts chapter 2? They're in the upper room, and it says, there appeared divided tongues of fire. It's the same word of God dividing the nations, dispersing them. Now he's bringing them all back in the book of Acts. And now it's the job of the church to image Yahweh to the world around us. And so we do this knowing that we are going into a land that is not yet our own, but God has said, everywhere your feet trod. Now that's not, we're not gonna apply a promise for Israel to us specifically as the church in this moment, but what we're saying is where we go, we bring God with us. And when we bring God with us, there's hope for humanity. So whether that's in Ecuador as we prayed this morning in Japan, or in your neighborhood. You bring the living God with you. Let's represent him to the community around us. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. God, we pray that in these next uh, weeks, Lord, as we continue our study through Deuteronomy, God, I pray that we would uh, have the lens looking at this uh, as, as God, you calling Israel out to be your representation to the world around uh, Lord, we pray that as the church, we would take that representation, uh, God, that we would take Jesus with us and that we would uh, bear your image well. Lord, we thank you. We praise you in your son's wonderful and beautiful name, Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Amen.